Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic. I've got a really, really fun show scheduled for you today. Mo DeKeel from The Athletic, from Bleacher Report, from uh, the internet, where he tweets out a ton of really great clips mid-game. We dive deep into the X's and O's of both uh, the Denver Los Angeles series and the Boston Miami series. We talk a lot about uh, the Mason Plumley breakdown and Anthony Davis three pointer to see the Lakers go up to zero in that series. We talk a lot about the different adjustments that are happening throughout the course of that series and how Denver can kind of maybe sneak their way back into it. And then we move on and talk about everything that's happening in the Boston Miami series, because there is a lot of really interesting stuff going on there between what the two coaches are doing. So from an X's and O's standpoint, uh, there's no one better than Mo. So I had to get him on, but before we get there, I've got to let you know there's a really great deal going on at The Athletic. Don't miss the exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season. Subscribe now and save. Sign up now to see yourself. Uh, The creativity, reporting, and storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com slash game theory, you can receive an all-access subscription for just $1 a month. Sports are back, and you're not going to want to miss the breaking stories, the in-depth analysis, whatever it is that you're coming to look for the athletics got it go to the athletic.com slash game theory receive an all-access subscription for just one dollar a month we hope to see you there now let's get to mo mo Dekeel is in the building mo what's going on man Oh, not a whole lot, man. Just enjoying hoops whenever I can get it. Oh, it's a, it's been a fun weekend of basketball. We got the start of the Lakers Nuggets series. We got a bit of a comeback in the Boston Miami series because Boston uh, decided to get that thing back to two to one. So I am pumped that we have two series that at least based off of what happened last night in Nuggets Lakers look like they're going to be highly competitive. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely going to be a very competitive series. I don't know. Well, actually I don't want to say definitely because that's the kind of loss that can flatten your heart. Like to really deflate you there. They should have, the Nuggets really should have won that game. And I think it was a brutal brutal way to lose and sometimes teams can't come back from that but i'm not counting out the nuggets because they've come back from bigger things this whole playoff so i'm not really betting against them either yeah they're tough i mean these guys really battle they fight they uh seem to have a resilience that you know a team like the clippers kind of proved that they didn't have this year right so yeah yeah, i think they get a lot of credit for that yeah and you got it and you just gotta you know play it out. I think this team has shown that resiliency. This is something I didn't think Sam they had before the start of the playoffs. Like I kind of doubted this a little bit. And even after they beat uh, Utah coming back from three, one, I go like, wow, that's impressive. I was like, but you know, now now they're going to play the Clippers and that's, that's going to be a a loss and, and, and that's going to be relatively easy. And it, you know, and then when they went down three, one, I was like, yeah, 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 I feel pretty good about this. And then of course, uh, they came back again, and, and and I think at this point now, I'm just like, I'm just not going to doubt them. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely the way that we have to go about it with the Nuggets. Like, we have to assume that they can make uh, comebacks and that they can, I mean, even last night, like, 
it was an incredible comeback. I thought uh, the way that they battled back, like they were down, I think it was seven or eight with what two and a half minutes left, and even that they just kept fighting and kept scratching and kept clawing to where they took that one point lead going into that final possession, and then uh, unfortunately just didn't come away with it. Yeah, I mean that's just it. Like this is a team that's going to keep coming, and I think. You know, they're they're going to earn a lot of respect from everybody around the league because of it. You know, this was a game. Look, the Lakers were up 16 in the second quarter, and it felt like this thing was going to be a massive blowout, you know. And, and even then, for them to just kind of stay the course and stay with everything, yep. you know, you got to give them a lot of credit. They They kept battling. So, you know, and it put them in a position to win it at the end. Yeah, and I think I do want to mention, you know, Mike Malone has been awesome throughout this entire playoffs. Uh, like if there was a coach of the playoffs so far and like apologies to Eric Spolstra, who has done incredible as well and deserves so many props. Like I think I would say Mike Malone because the little adjustments that he keeps, you know, ticking into place to make this thing work. It's just remarkable. Like from realizing that Gary Harris didn't have it last night and going with PJ Dozier, right? Like little things like that, getting what they can out of Michael right. Porter Jr. off the bench, despite very clear defensive deficiencies. Uh, you know, obviously he uh, made a slight miscalculation at the end of the game by tossing Mason Plumley in there as opposed to Paul Millsap. But uh, I think that Mike Malone has done an exceptional job and, you know, m- maybe it is worth moving directly into starting at the finish uh, of this uh, game too, where, yeah, Mason Plumley just kind of uh, – I don't – it's hard for me to tell what his thought process there was. I think it was just like he thought it was a screen uh, coming from LeBron and, you know, yelled out for a switch. But, like, I think that, you know, it's a player who's not particularly comfortable dealing with off-screen actions as a center. Uh, it's, you know, guys that he guards tend not to run off of ball screens. So when you put guys in uncomfortable situations, be it – you know what Anthony Davis said happened last night and it was originally uh, a play for LeBron and Anthony Davis you know looked at Rajon Rondo and decided to you know go off script a little bit or if it was uh, you know the Lakers coaching staff devising a situation where they saw Mason Plumlee out there and saw a guy who isn't particularly uh, comfortable dealing with those kind of actions and you know had Anthony go out and run basically off of a pseudo screen I think that everything about that from the Lakers perspective was incredibly intelligent uh, to put Mason in that position. I mean, there are a lot of things in that play. I think part of the calculus to put Plumlee in the game in that scenario was we're just going to protect the paint, right? Right. Baseline out of bounds. We want to make sure we protect the paint there. This is, we don't want anything like a slip to the basket or things like that. Right. They're down one point. So on. So I think that, Right, so you got to protect the the rim. You're thinking maybe there's a lob coming, and you know you have Rondo inbounding the ball, who great passer. I push back a little bit when they say like this was a play for LeBron because he didn't move right the entire play. <laughs> like it wasn't, you know, it, it, I, I'm not sure what the full design of the play was because if AD doesn't come around and get the ball, like I don't know. You're just, I guess they're hoping they can just lob it up over the top to LeBron at the elbow and he'll just hit a jumper. Like, I don't know what the whole action was. Cause there wasn't a lot to it on the lake 
Rutgers end. So, you know, the the big thing, and you touched on it, like Plumlee's not the type of guy to chase a perimeter player. This isn't something that he does well. And, you know, the, the mistake I think Malone made was, you know, everybody says it, you know, putting Plumlee in instead of Millsap. But I think it's because Millsap and Grant had kind of a good understanding of where to be and, yeah. and whatnot. And I've seen a lot of people saying, yo, Grant should have switched and things like that. No. You're asking him to leave LeBron. Like, just, just understand that. Without there being, it wasn't like AD was coming off of LeBron's shoulders, right? Or even just off of LeBron's backside. You know, LeBron's at the elbow, and Davis is curling around the three-point line. Like, there was a lot of space there. And people that think, like, oh, he should just immediately go. I mean, one, he has his back to the ball because he, he can't, so he can't really see anything. He's trying to face guard LeBron. And then you have Plumlee, who's coming in from the start of the play is in bad position because he's not even in Davis's body, right? Like, there's right. a lot of space in between, and he's really disconnected, Sam, and it's such a problem. So even when it's clear AD's not running to the paint but running around the three-point line, Plumlee never closes the gap, and he's calling Grant to switch. But let's just say it plays out. Let's say Grant switches out to AD. You know, and, and and takes that pass away. The position of where Plumlee is and asking for Grant or telling Grant to switch opens up the slip for LeBron right to the rim. Like that's just a disaster in its own right. Like that's a at the very least a foul. Somebody's right. gonna get uh, called for a foul if he ca- catches it and goes up with it. If not, an and one. So it's not like switching was the end all be all in that scenario. So. You know, I think it was a blown coverage, you know, starting with Plumlee. And, you know, they still got a damn good contest out of Jokic. I think Jokic did well to get back in position and fight and try to contest that shot. I'm glad that you brought up the amount of space that Mason gave Anthony Davis. I really think that there is, I don't want to say I know this at all because I don't. I wonder if in the huddle Malone told them no easy twos because it was a one point game and they thought more than shooting the three that the Lakers would use their size to their advantage and try to get a two instead of a three. And if that happened, I think that's actually like kind of a reasonable move on Malone's part. But at the same time, like Mason Plumlee needs to, a be tighter and B if he does, if he kind of gives up that space early, he needs to quickly get into lock and trail position as opposed to just like veering into the screen and yelling switch while trying to like cut off that passing lane to LeBron James, as you kind of mentioned with LeBron diving to the rim as quickly as he can. And, you know, at the end of the day, Mason Plumlee is not going to be quick enough to catch up to LeBron diving to the basket from the position he was in. So I totally agree with you that the ultimate cardinal sin here was not even that Mason Plumlee called for a switch. It was the amount of space that he gave Anthony Davis originally because the amount of space that he gave Anthony Davis originally before Anthony Davis started moving even was what kind of veered him into the screen to begin with. But it wasn't even a screen, Sam. Like it's, no, it's I, almost right, as soon as AD yeah. starts to, 
like it was he screened himself off like as soon as the play yeah. happens he just ran immediately as as if lebron had a plumley magnet right and, and then plumley <laughs> just came running right to him you know and there's there's a video beforehand of grant telling plumley like come here come here and i'm saying if there's a screen you know we don't know fully what grant's saying but he's right. kind of talking to plumley and motioning like come to this spot and that's if this to me, that's if there's a, a a screen coming because you can't let AD just run that aimlessly without really being untouched, you know, or or feel like he's being chased. Like that was a big play right there, and and you know, granted, it's it's the game winner and it's a tough shot because of Jokic's contest, who I think did a, again just did a great job, showed that speed he flashed in the hallway pregame, uh, <laughs> you know, to to get out there, but. Like the just that mistake is a big one, and you yeah. know at the end of games, and this is the thing too. This isn't the first time we've seen Plumlee blow this against the Lakers in the bubble. You right. know the Kyle Kuzma three, you know was a, a a situation where Plumlee thought there was supposed to be a switch and there wasn't, and then he's behind the action, and you have Kuzma coming off of a post split knocking down a three. Like you know it's just. Here's the thing. I don't trust Pumley at the end of games. <laughs> don't put him in a defensive possessions at the end of games, period. Yeah, I do agree with you. I think it's, like, hard for me to – like, we, we've now spent, like, seven minutes or whatever kind of harping on this last play and, like, this last defensive mistake from, mistake from Mason Plumley, And at the end of the day, that – it ended up being the final possession where the Lakers won the game. I don't think it's necessarily the most important thing of what cost Denver the game. Uh, it was a miscommunication that was in an exceptionally bad spot, and he is at fault. Like, I agree with you. Uh, it being that there was no actual screen set from LeBron James, there's just no circumstance where Jeremy Grant can actually be expected to switch there. Like, you cannot go from full denial of LeBron James. You can't switch there, period, if you're Jeremy Grant. I mean, if you're going to switch, you got to feel like your guy is there. Like, you know, there's a big thing. When I was taught about switching in the NBA, and this is something I learned in San Antonio, was it was contact switch. Like, the defenders had to come into touch with each other because that basically took away any real slip opportunity. Right, but Plumley's calling for it when he's at the nail. Like he's not even close to to Grant to even be ready to switch. So, right. you know, it's just a tough position. And you're again, you're asking Grant to leave probably the best player on this planet right now. You know, or we can debate it or what what not and all that stuff. But at least top three, certainly you know, you're asking the best player still LeBron in the playoffs in it. Yeah, yeah, and you're asking him to leave LeBron in a game-winning situation? No, <laughs> like, that's, that's a hard that pass. Might be my response. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like no, I'm not. No, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> you know, and and it was just and it was just such a weird play in the in the in the scheme of everything. Just because if AD doesn't get the ball. I don't know where it's going. I don't think the Lakers get a good shot after that because there's just nowhere to go. LeBron wasn't working. There's probably 
maybe two more seconds left on the, the five second count if we're being generous. And the Lakers had no timeouts. Like, you know, Rondo was going to have to throw it somewhere. So right. I think that was crazy. But of course, these things don't just come down to one play overall, right? Like it's one play out of whatever, 300 throughout the game. You know, they, they made mistakes along the way. But overall, I thought Jokic was phenomenal down the stretch. I mean, his performance yep. in the clutch, Sam, was was amazing. And I thought he did a great job attacking switches, beating up on the smaller guys a bit. I mean, his tipping when Murray missed that three was was a hell of a play to begin with. Yep. I mean, that's not going to get – unfortunately, that's going to get overshadowed. But that was massive. Yeah, I mean, that was the last play on their, like, little nine-point run that they went on to actually take the lead. It was an enormous play. And, like, he, I think that – did he score all nine of those points? Like, I'm pretty sure he did. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure he did because it was post-up, post-up, three. Yeah, then that tip-in, and then the post-up over AD, and then AD made the shot. So I think, you know, that's, that's kind of – I think he had the last 11 points for them. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Nikola Jokic, you know, we mentioned this on the podcast last week with Danny LaRue, but Nikola Jokic has morphed into, I mean, look, if you're asking someone to take the final shot of a game, I'm still probably taking, you know, someone in the LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard class, but you can make a very real case that Nikola Jokic is one of the four most clutch players in the NBA right now. Uh, given I mean, his performance if, in, ex, uh, in elimination games, given his performance in playoff games, like that guy, I, I want that guy every single time on my team. I mean, if I have 15 seconds, I'm going to run a post up for Jokic. Like, I feel like I'm going to get a good look out of it. Even if they come to double, I trust them to make the pass out of it, you know, and if they don't come to double, I mean, listen, AD was what second team all defense this year, you know, was a potential defensive player of the year uh, recipient, like you know, and he just backed him down and went straight into his jump hook like it was nothing, you know, and and I think that that says a lot. So you know, you got to start looking at Jokic in those scenarios. I think he's going to be able to deliver with that time and. God, his his run throughout the whole playoffs, like it got overshadowed a little bit with how Murray played so well in, in the Utah series. But he put up big numbers in that series as well. Like he's having a yep. hell of a playoff series. Like this is uh, yeah, this is exciting stuff just because you're looking at it going like, I can't wait to continue to watch this team grow because he's the oldest really of the main guys on that team and he's 25. Yeah, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And, you know, the last thing I want to finish up on on Plumley real quick before we move on to the rest of the Nuggets and the Lakers here. It's just like I saw some people saying like, oh, this is like the worst thing, the worst mistake that's been made in the end of a game defensive scenario I think I've ever seen. That stuff just is like super hyperbolic. Like we see defensive breakdowns like this regularly and like I I just don't want Mason to get like demolished for this. It was a bad play. The original sin was, again, I think that you gave him too much space. But, like, let's just just like chill a little bit on it because this stuff happens throughout the course of a regular NBA game. It was a bad mistake. It was his fault. But, again, like, we do see this stuff, like, semi-regularly. Like, it was not, like, the worst thing ever in the history of the planet. I mean, we got to – I mean, we, we speak very hyperbolic 
every time, right? This right. is the, the BAM block was the greatest block of all time. Like, chill out, relax. Like, you know, like we do it every time with everything. It was damn impressive. But, you know, we got to calm down a bit. And I think, and and Sam, I might be a little bit guilty as well because I had put up the video, you know, broke down that play. But I think overall, like, that doesn't define Plumlee. Like, he still had good plays in there. I just think some of it comes down to, like, this isn't a guy I trust at the end of the games to right. make smart decisions. You know, this isn't a guy I want out there on a defensive stop. Like, that was kind of... I think the biggest issue is, you know, that's something you got to look at Malone and go and like, why are you bringing him in? You know, I didn't think like Millsap was getting torched. I don't know if Millsap gets out there in time, but I don't know if he doesn't. You know, I I think he makes, you know, can make a smarter decision. I I trust him in that sense. And I think sometimes, yeah, we just beat up on these guys. And and we are so quick to say this was the greatest thing since sliced bread until the next play happens. Right. And you're right. Like defensive breakdowns are going to, we're going to see at least two or three more throughout the, the playoffs of an end of game defensive breakdown. Most likely like, you know, it's just, it's what's going to happen. Right. No, that's a hundred percent. Right. Uh, I think that Millsap probably wouldn't have given Anthony Davis the original space that Plumlee did. And, you know, given that I think that was the Cardinal sin here, like Millsap would have been the better option, but that's fine. Like it's, it's over, done with, the Nuggets are going to move on. And I think the bigger problem for the Nuggets is they need to figure out what the fuck to do in Jamal Murray's minutes off the court. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Jamal Murray played 44 minutes last night. The Nuggets won those minutes by 16 points. Jamal Murray was off the court for four minutes last night. They lost those minutes by 18 points. Uh, that's, that's the ball game. That's like, the that, game. <laughs> to me, is so much better bigger of a deal for Denver they need to figure out like I know that Monte went like three for four and had nine points but like he was just not good enough defensively like it's why I think in part and like look PJ Dozier plays the wing more than he plays the point for them but like you know they do often go with those two point guard lineups with Jamal and Monte like I think that's part of why they ended up tossing PJ in there they just felt like they weren't getting enough from Torrey Craig and Monte Morris yeah and I think really the guy I'm really looking at that would have had to have stepped out, stepped up more in that scenario is Gary Harris. I mean, yep. he was one of six, you know, Malone, you know, put him on the bench early, only got 25 minutes, but like, that's a, that's a big one at six, you know, for just three points and things like that. I think across the board, they just, they struggled. I thought Porter played well, well coming off the bench for them, but yeah, it's, they got to figure it out. You know, how are you going to be able to steal minutes because this is still a long way to go if they're going to win four games this is that minimum six game series right if not seven because i imagine the lakers will probably win one more i mean we all know the nuggets don't play until it's three one but i think it's a uh a thing where like you can't expect him to go 48 minutes for the next four or five games you know like that's just not really feasible on on murray he'll be exhausted and gassed and i think that's that's going to be a big one is they're going to have to figure out how can we win those minutes, you know, and and maybe not even win those minutes, but just not lose them so badly. You know, that four minute stretch could have basically cost you the game. And that's, that's a brutal realization to look at. And I think it's, it's hard, but you just, you got to look at the other guys and be like, yo, we need you to give us more. If you're not scoring, you need to at least be able to defend. You can't give up the buckets we've given up. And part of it too, Man, just overall an incredibly sloppy game, really from both teams. Yep. 
you know, with 21 turnovers, like it, it's, it hurts, you know, you can't have Millsap and Grant can't combine for six turnovers amongst each other, you know, like, like Jokic is going to get turnovers, he, even though he only had two. Murray is going to get turnovers because they handle the ball so much. The other guys can't be the ones coughing it up. Yeah, and I mean, even the Lakers had 23 turnovers in this game. You know, they got nine turnovers from Kyle Kuzma and Rajon Rondo. And that's just going to be really tough yeah. for them to overcome. And they did. Like, they figured out a way to do it. I do think that, like, last night, in a lot of ways, was kind of a microcosm of how tough this matchup is for Denver at the end of the day, just because they had a lot of stuff go right. Yeah, they turned it over more often than you want. And yeah, they shot like 34% from three. But they actually did like shoot pretty well on what is a great interior defense. Like they got an incredible performance out of Nikola Jokic while Dwight Howard was out there like, I don't even know what Dwight was doing last night in terms of like just being. I mean, Dwight was it was it was a it was a weird Dwight game being being very extra. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think that kind of actually, (laughs) you you know, it was just like a lot more than was it in a way where it was actually like you want guys to bring energy, but that was kind of a little bit of a bad energy. Uh, and and here's the thing too, like I, I, the, the problem for Jokic and really for the the Nuggets in this series is just that the Lakers can continue to throw bigs at Jokic. You know they're going to start the game with McGee. They're going to come in with you know uh, Howard, right? Which is at least, the very least he's annoying the hell out of everybody. You, you know, <laughs> from Jokic to to the fans and and, and driving everybody a little bit nuts. Um, but he's becoming an irritant and he was really good in game one was not so good in game two. And maybe Jokic hasn't figured it out, but then they still have Morris that they could throw at him. And of course they could end up with AD on him. You know, like there's, there's a, a lot of bodies that they could throw at him. And it's not like, like, I don't trust the nuggets to go small. No, you know, like I, maybe it's playing Porter at the four and go with, uh, Jokic at the five, but that's not better than the Lakers going small with AD at the five and LeBron at the four, you know, right. and that's, and that's something that I just don't think they, they necessarily have a great small ball lineup, maybe down the road as Porter progresses, hopefully on the defensive end and becomes a little bit of a better defender. It could work out that way. But right now in this series, in this moment, like that's the problem. They kind of got to stay a little bit big and that allows the Lakers to stay big and to continue to throw bodies at Jokic. Well, and, like, there's a reason that Michael Porter wasn't out there closing the game, despite the fact that Porter had a really good game last night offensively. And it's that these teams that can really hit backdoor passes and these pick-and-roll ball handlers like LeBron, who can really take advantage of his still-developing, let's call them, instincts as a defender in the pick-and-roll off the ball, they can just really hammer him, like, even though Michael Porter dropped 15 points on six of nine shooting and had four rebounds and did a really, really good job last night. He also, they lost his minutes by six points. Like his defense is still lacking. And there's a reason that I thought he was a lot better against the Clippers. And I mentioned this on the last podcast as well. You know, the Clippers offense is very stationary and stagnant. 
in a way that is easier for him to guard and they don't have a ton of crazy ball movers and passers with the Lakers. They have guys like Rajon Rondo and LeBron James who, while their offense can get stagnant, they can really manipulate the way help defenses play them. And Michael Porter is still developing in terms of not falling for a lot of those little tricks of the trade defensively that LeBron James and Rondo and, um, all of these other guys that the Lakers have present to them. Yeah, and look at it this way when we talk about Porter, and I think everybody needs to kind of relax a little bit. And I'm critical of him. I'm on top of it. I'm critical of every player because I'm a jerk. Right. Um, the Right, damn, Sam, you're supposed to say like I'm no, not so I'm, bad. No, I'm, I'm, with you, I'm with you on it, though. Like, I'm, it's, not, it's not that we're jerks. We're just, we tend to look at the, like, whole picture on this stuff. And, yeah, Michael Porter had a really useful night last night, but, like, he – didn't really help them in terms of like winning a playoff game either. And and let's be honest here. If you asked Mike Malone in January and February, no, if you told him, Hey, Michael Porter jr. Is going to be a big part of your bench, you know, in the playoffs and he's going to play big minutes for you in big games, you know, and in, in game sevens and, and things like that in the series, he would have looked at you crazy. Yep. You know, like the kid was still developing. He's still like, what is he, like 21 years old? Yep. You, you know, he's still learning. This is his first real touch of, of NBA basketball because he sat out all last year. So it's not right. like this is just like it's 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 it would be shocking, to be honest, if he was so good defensively <laughs> on top of how good he is offensively. Right. Uh, we'd be looking at him going like this is like a future uh, MVP type guy. Right. Uh so I think there's that, but there's one more thing I want to touch on, Sam, and I know we want to get to the other game. Everybody needs to – I hope everybody finally, finally understands how important Rajon Rondo is to this Laker team. You, yeah. you know, like, look, he got killed and played a terrible game one against the Rockets. He ain't played basketball since March, folks. Like, you know – and then he comes back in game two and is just rolling. And what he provides is another ball handler that allows LeBron, that moves LeBron off the ball when he's on the court, which then turns LeBron into a cutter, you know, turns into a set the screen and slip or things like that. It just allows Vogel to move LeBron around the court because he has a guy that he knows can get him the ball. I mean, just even posting up, you know, like Rondo will find him and make the entry pass in a way that only LeBron can get it. And I think there's an element there that I don't think people realize, like that's Rondo's value to this Laker team more than anything else. And when you have him and LeBron on the court together, it opens everything up for them offensively because now you have two super high IQ guys who seem to be very connected and understanding what the other one wants to do. Like that's a problem. You know, when LeBron went back door off of Murray, you know, for the, the lob dunk, like, that's something LeBron's comfortable doing because he knows Rondo's going to find him with the pass. Yep. I don't know if he's comfortable if Caruso has it. I don't know if he's as comfortable if it's Danny Green throwing the lop. Like, that's a different scenario. So I think that's an important aspect when we talk about this Laker team. The the value Rondo brings to it is just the comfort level and, and, and allows them to move LeBron in different pe- ways. Yeah, and I think that another big thing that that does, and you kind of alluded to this in the start, of that little spiel is he allows them to unlock those small lineups because like you said, they go small better than in my opinion, anyone in the NBA. 
right? And that's how they ended up just like steamrolling the Rockets. Right. Because the Rockets go small, well, the Lakers can go small too. They're big when they go small because Anthony Davis is the size of a true center and LeBron James is the size of a true four. Uh, and they can play like, you know, Danny Green and Catavius Caldwell Pope, and it's like a normal sized lineup. But these guys being big while also being able to big, be able to, you know, play skilled small ball, right? Uh, it, it's like kind of a convoluted, you know, turn of phrase in terms of the lineups that they can put out there. But, you know, because these lineups aren't really actually small, they're just normal right. sized lineups that are hyper skilled that have the perception for opposing teams of being small. Um, you know, Alex Crusoe like is a good player and he played 29 minutes last night and his development has allowed them to go small more often than what they could early in the season. But Rajon Rondo is the one that like really unlocks it for them and allows them to go small basically whenever they want to go small, right? Like they were small for half of that game last night, basically. Um, you know, like believe that McGee and Howard played like literally 24 minutes. And then the other 24 minutes, it was just Caruso and Rondo playing the point and sharing lead ball handler duties with LeBron and then allowing essentially the Lakers to play this hyper skilled brand of basketball that made it really tough on the Nuggets to match up with. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, it's just it's just hard guys like plain and simple and you know we saw Caruso even shrink in the moment you know because he missed the wide open three badly yep. you know the play before and, and then Danny Green got the offensive rebound which led to Murray blocking the shot baseline out of bounds and then uh Plumlee's worst day ever uh <laughs> you know but I think the other thing too and this is my last point on the game because I'm going to wear people out I still think the Nuggets did a good job defensively in the fourth quarter you know, you yeah. take that play away. The Lakers made a lot of like, uh, we'll live with that type shots. KCP with the corner three uh, up against the shot clock. Uh, a few plays before the AD three, AD hit another one, like a step back three up against the shot clock that was contested. Like I, I felt like the Nuggets did a good job pushing the Lakers to play up against the shot clock. And I thought that was something that they did well. Again, it's just unfortunate that they have, at the end of the day, they just they just lost it. They one play hurt them, and it, unfortunately, it was the most important play. And with that, uh, let's take a quick little commercial break, and we'll be back with Mo DeKeel to talk about the Celtics and Heat series. Hey, I'm Taz Mellis of No Dunks on the Athletic. Do you want to walk into a room with your chest puffed out, your neck long, and your shoulders broad? Of course you do. For me, getting clothes that fit properly can give me the confidence I need to do just that. Indochino hooked me up with the gear that fits perfectly. I dreaded getting dressed for my Zoom meetings, but now I change for each one with a big smile on my face. I did a virtual fitting on Indochino's slick website for them to get my measurements. I didn't have to talk to a single human. There are so many options. Here are a few I chose. A long shirt, because I tuck it in. I got a no dunks monogram, and I decided against the shirt pocket. I sincerely did not think that custom fit clothing was this affordable, and all customizations are included in the cost. The website keeps your measurements on file, so you never have to re-enter them. The best part, Indochino suits start at just $2.99, 
with all customizations included. Indochino is a no-brainer if you're getting married. Visit one of the Indochino showrooms across North America or book a virtual appointment like I did and shop online at Indochino.com. And right now, you'll get $30 off any purchase of $3.99 or more when you enter code TAS. Not ass, TAS, T-A-S, at checkout. That's Indochino.com, promo code TAS. All right, and we're back here with Mo DeKeel. Mo, the Celtics figured out how to score on Miami's zone defense in game three. I think a big part of that was getting Gordon Hayward back. Like Gordon didn't have like the biggest statistical game, but just his presence and ball movement made it something that Miami had to account for at all times. Uh, In general, where do you stand with this series as it's two to one? And the next game isn't until Wednesday. This is a uh, this is a big layoff here for these coaches to be able to adjust and try and figure out different ways to stop each other. Yeah, like first off, like I always thought this series was going to be a slug match. I thought this was going to be a tough one. Um, I know some people had had this being a a, a Celtics route, and I thought that was kind of silly, just not understanding like you know, how good the Miami Heat are as a team. Not looking at the parts individually, but looking at them as a whole and how well they work together. It's very impressive. I mean, it's kind of similar to, it's different, but similar to the the way the Spurs teams were always just all connected with each other. And I feel like that's this Miami team. The zone, the zone offense that the Celtics were able to improve on in in game three was just like, they did it multiple ways, Sam. It was like, Look, getting into the middle, attacking from there, getting a guy on the baseline and, and, you know, working the short corner. I mean, there were a couple of plays with Grant Williams making some buckets there. Uh, the ball movement was much better. It was bang, bang, and it didn't stick in hands as much as it has did in games one and two. I don't know if they fully figured it out because the one thing I look at, Sam, I go, if I'm Miami, I just go, you know, they were just the more physical team that game. And that's what it felt like in game three. It felt like the Celtics were just, we're going to physically attack you. I mean, they attacked the paint with a reckless abandonment and they just crushed the heat in the, in the paint numbers. I don't have it in front of me. I got to, I'll pull it up when I, when I'm done uh, monologuing here. Uh, But the, I think overall, I just think the, the, the heat present a lot of issues because they're just, they're just so damn tough and it's impossible to put them away. I mean, they were down all three of these games and they've made a run at the end of all three of these games. And I think the Celtics have to be mindful that they can't lose any sort of vigilance and, and, and stay really rock solid throughout it because they almost let go of the rope in game three. Yeah, they really did. Uh, I was watching the game over at a friend's house and we were just like waiting uh, for the Miami run. And it started to come. It started to come. We were like, Jesus Christ, this team just doesn't die. Like, this is not going <laughs> to. They, they really don't, you know. <laughs> I mean, this is. And that's and that's a credit to Spo and the players itself. Like, that's just the the thing that makes them so tough. As I, pull, uh, I pulled up the numbers, you know, the, the Celtics had 60 paint points, you know, to the to the Heat's 36. I thought they did a good job attacking Dragic a good job attacking the zone and but I just don't know if that's something that I'm going to ex- I don't expect to see that again in this in this series where they're going to outscore the the heat by 
uh, 24 in the, in the paint. You know, it's interesting. I think a big part of it depends on what personnel Miami can have out on the court and what personnel Miami has to have out on the court to get offense. Because, you know, the thing that Boston did really well is they took advantage of Duncan Robinson when he was on the court a lot of the time. And Miami in that game, for a large portion of it, did kind of need Duncan Robinson on the court because Jay Crowder was just straight up missing everything he threw at the basket. Kelly Olenek was atrocious in that game. Sorry, Kelly. He just wasn't very good. Teams still just don't respect Oh, they Derek were terrible. His, his minutes were terrible. Yeah, like he was, <laughs> he was awful. Like, sorry, I feel bad, like, just – you know, saying that because Kelly seems like a very nice guy, but like it, it was terrible. Um, and then Iguodala, they didn't really get anything. Kendrick Nunn committed, I genuinely think, the worst foul I've ever seen on a oh, basketball God. court <laughs> in that game. And oh. Spo immediately pulled him and was like, you are done for the game. Um, they really only stayed in because Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson went like 8 of 20 from 3. And like didn't turn the ball over and were constantly a threat that Boston had to account for. But those guys give away a lot defensively and Boston took advantage of their size and strength and ability to drive on those guys uh, in a really substantial way. Yeah. I thought, you know, you got to give credit to uh, Brad Stevens, you know, for, for kind of putting that plan in together and, and we keep touching on it. And I don't think people just understand having another playmaker, on the court in Gordon Hayward is massive. And the other thing too is Hayward healthy means no more semi-Ogele. And that's two different types of players too. Like when you have Ogele step on the court, it's not, all right, semi, get the ball, drive and kick and make plays. No, no, no. It's go stand in the corner and let's pray to God the ball doesn't come to you. You know, it's, it's, you know, when it's Hayward, it's all right, go out there and make some stuff happen. And you're right. Even though the numbers weren't, you know, huge. I mean, he, he it wasn't like a eye popping six points, you know, but, you know, he had four assists that, that are massive. And I think it was just kind of getting into the nooks and crannies. And I actually think he himself is a zone buster in yep. his ability. Like I trust him more than anybody else in the middle, you know, for, for the Celtics to make the right play as soon as he catches the ball in the middle of that zone. Whereas I think if Marcus Smart catches it, he's going to look for a second to think about a shot. Right. Jason Tatum's going to look to see if he can drive. You know, Jalen Brown might be able to make some things, you know, might look to try to make some things happen. Kemba's going to think he can go into a step-back jumper. You know, but there's all that. When Hayward gets it, he's looking to just where where's the right play. And I think that's a big part of it. And I think the, the last thing that makes the, the point of having Hayward around so special, too, is it takes – less off Jalen. I mean, it takes more off Jalen Brown's plate and he gets to just focused on doing Jalen Brown things. You know, it's not a shock to me that with, with Hayward on the, you know, playing and healthy that Brown had his best game in this series, 26 points, 11 of 17 shooting, seven rebounds, you know, five assists. Like that's a big Jalen Brown game right there. Yeah, it really was. Uh, like you said, Gordon kind of unlocks a lot of the different lineups that they can put out there. Uh, because of that, they they had a tendency early in the series to get a little bit stagnant, right? Like, it right. was a lot of different guys looking for their own shot. I thought that Marcus also did a better job in that game 
of looking for a pass and then looking for a shot. Uh, Marcus was also the beneficiary of getting a chance to play on Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero a reasonable amount and took advantage of that, driving to the basket and getting to the foul line a bunch. So I kind of think I agree with you in a way that like Gordon Hayward's just sheer presence it forces Miami's defensive matchups to really kind of adjust in a way that makes things very difficult for them. And they almost have to have something like Bam Adebayo, Jimmy Butler, Jay Crowder, Dragic, and honestly, I think kind of a fourth defender out there uh, as much as they can afford to put Duncan and Hero on the bench. Like it's just going to be really hard for all of Dragic, Duncan and Hero to be on the court against these Celtics lineups when they're able to play uh, as intelligently as they are. Yeah. And it's hard, you know, and that's part of the reason why they go into their zone. And that's why the, the, you know, the Jimmy Butler's and guys like that are up top to try to wreak havoc. So it takes the pressure off those guys. But if the Celtics can manipulate it and, and, and find the cracks, they'll be able to, even in the zone, still be able to go at the Robinsons, the Dragiches, and and uh, the Heroes. Although, I think, like, I'd be careful continuing to go at Dragic. He's a tough dude. Like, he'll figure it out. I'm not too worried about him. He ain't going to be a defensive stopper, but I don't think he'll be as bad defensively throughout the rest of the series as he, as, as he was, I think, in this game. I just think the other thing, too, and this is the ultimate thing for me, Sam, I just trust Spo to make the right moves. Right. It, it, and this isn't a shot at Stevens. I just think Spo is one of the, the most underrated coaches in the NBA. I think he's a top five, if not a top three coach right now in the league. I think we overlook him a lot because he won those championships with LeBron, but he really kind of put a lot of good stuff in that action there. I think even in those LeBron heat teams, like, look, he just said, look, we're going to put Bosch on the outside and we're going to play LeBron on the interior a bit more and, and look what netted them. And I think there's just, there's a lot of cleverness in there. So for me, I think Spo has it, especially now with a couple of days off in between, I, I'm a little bit excited to see what Spo might have uh, worked up in his uh, evil lab. So it's funny. I think that when I think of Brad, I think of a guy who is actually not awesome in my opinion, adjusting in game. I think he is exceptional at adjusting, at adjusting like after the game and coming up with a game plan to make things work. Uh, in Spo's case, I think Spo is a great in-game adjustment guy. And one place that you saw that has been in the way that they've used Bam Adebayo as a roller in this series. Uh, in the first half of game two, they were often just kind of running, you know, Bam pick and rolls. They would short roll him into floater range. They would... Um, you know, roll him to the strong side of the court where there were multiple guys. And then in the second half of game two, and this extended into game three, they, especially when Duncan Robinson made those three, three pointers to start the game in game three, it really just opened up everything for Bam Adebayo. It made it to the point where they would just roll Bam to that weak side where Duncan is and put all sorts of pressure on the tagger for Boston, whoever it was. And it's an impossible choice because your choice is either I'm leaving one of the five best shooters in the world for an open three, 
or I'm ta- or I'm like not tagging on to Bam Adebayo and allowing him to get a wide open dunk at the basket, and that doesn't work either. And you know, Bam, I feel like has scored fifty three points or something in the last six quarters of this series, in part because of how Spo has put him in position to just give all sorts of trouble to Boston's help defenders. Uh, you know, sometimes they'll empty outside of the court and make Bam just the roller. Sometimes it'll be on Duncan. Sometimes it'll be on Hero uh, in his side because Hero was just on fire throughout the first half and Boston adjusted to him, right? So the way that they've utilized Bam as a roller has been exceptional in this series. And I think that the problem with this is now going forward if you have to play more defensive lineups with, you know, say Derek Jones replacing a Duncan Robinson or uh, Andre Iguodala replacing a Tyler Hero or, you know, having to play Bam, Jimmy, Jay and one of Iguodala or Derek Jones together, it makes it much more difficult to get those open roles to the basket. For Bam out of oh, you, you, you'll live with that, right? Like with those guys, you'll live with it. And you were right. spot on in your assessment. Like I have video clips that I put up of, you know, watching Jalen Brown hugging up on Robinson, clearing the way for a Bam roll. Yeah. Uh, same thing with with Tatum, you know. And I think that's kind of the three point shot is so important for Miami. Those guys knocking down shots, even and and Crowder knocking down threes as well, like. Those guys knocking down shots put so much pressure on the defense because it just opens everything up. Because now it's like, okay, we can't leave these dudes on these pick and rolls. And now it just becomes a two-man game. And look, Daniel Tice has been really good throughout these playoffs. He don't stand a chance rotating over to Bam on the roll <laughs> after helping. Like that's And that's not a shot on, on Tice. No. There's not a lot of big guys that could do that, you know? Um, and I think that's kind of the issue. And this. There's a great example, Sam, in, in game two. It was the third quarter where Bam got 15 points, I think, off of these the pick and rolls and things like that, including an and one and stuff like that. In fourth quarter, they're running a high pick and roll, and it's Grant Williams in. And he's so cognizant of the Bam roll, he actually gives up a layup to Dragic. Like, that's... I mean, that's kind of the effect of it. So I think, you know, the, the it all comes down for the Heat uh, on the offensive end of, like, can they have enough threes to make those guys have to pressure them and, and, and open up that role? And if they make enough threes, maybe you can live with what they're going to give up on the defensive end. Where do we think this series goes from here? I, uh, I picked Boston in six hard-fought games. I still think I would take Boston to win this series. Now that Hayward is back, I do think I would say seven. But where are you at in terms of where this goes? I think this goes seven, and I think it's a toss-up. Because I just think game sevens, anything can happen. You know, we saw it with Clippers, Nuggets. You know, it, it it can get going. I think if everybody's if healthy and things like that, like, I, I just don't know. I don't think the Heat are going to have three bad games in a row. You know, I think, you know, they'll, I think they might lose the next game, but you know, it's, it's, I could see them coming back, you know, Dragic shot really poorly two for 10 uh, Crowder was two for 10. I, he's been pretty hot in the playoffs. So it's, it scares me to say, I'm going to trust him 
to to get going, but I don't think he's going to be as bad. I don't think Kelly Olynyk's going to play as bad as he did. Like that was just that was just god awful. And, and I know you don't want to kill him because he's you know nice guy and that's his Canadian features. But you know he just he just kind of he really struggled in this one. I think it's going to be a a thing. And I think we're going to see a more aggressive Jimmy Butler. Like Jimmy's been able to kind of hang back for the first three quarters and then turn it on for the fourth. And I think that kind of hurt them in game three, but I think we'll see a, a a more aggressive Jimmy earlier on in the game to, to kind of alleviate the pressure off the other guys and put more pressure on Boston. And I think that's something there, but for me, I just think overall in the series, like even when Miami was up to, I said, this is still probably a seven game series. If I was Miami, I think that one of my big adjustments would be trying to be more aggressive driving toward the basket when Daniel Tice is in help. Because Tice, while Celtics fans uh, get frustrated with the whistle that Tice gets regularly, uh, it's accurate that he does get a tough whistle. (laughs) And if they can get him in foul trouble to where Tice like what happened in game three can only play 24 minutes. That means that the Celtics are either going to have to play small with Walker, smart Hayward Brown Tatum, or they're going to have to play small or like with Grant Williams as well. Right. Or they're going to have to involve Ennis Cantor or Robert Williams. And the first two games of this series, uh, I'm trying to remember how much Rob played in game two, to be honest. Now that I think about it, um, might have only been game one now that I'm remembering. Um, every time Rob was on the court, mm-hmm. Miami just hunted him with off-ball action because they knew that like he's just not trustworthy in making the right reads off the ball. Yeah, and I think you just got to kind of keep attacking. And I think that's, you know, look, Robert Williams is still a young guy, still still learning as he goes and things like that. I, I don't think they have the advantage at the big man position. You know, I think uh, – if anybody thinks Tice is going to be able to stop Bam, like good luck, guys. Like, and and that's that, not that was a, shot. a wild scout take. Yeah, I was going to leave that alone, but whoever said that was a wash, uh, um, really needs to be. And thank God it's anonymous because I don't want to know who the scout is because I, I, that to his own team might be like, yo, what are you doing? Um, but I think the 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 thing is just Bam's just that much better, and Tice has been good and it's been important for this Boston team and will play an important role throughout the playoffs, but he ain't going to overcome how good Bam is. And, you know, we, we can talk about it being a tough whistle also. Tice fouls a lot. <laughs> it's that simple. Sometimes these are just legitimate fouls. And 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 that's something that they got to figure out. I thought, you know, they, they stole some minutes with Cantor in the game a little bit, and, and this might be a game that he can play in. But overall, like, I think the Celtics' best way to go is play small. I think that I think their best way to go is when Tice is on the court. Like I think that having Tice in his size and his uh, ability to move on the perimeter in addition to protect the rim, like I do think that is still their best lineup. But the ability they now have to adjust down and play a small lineup that is competent that doesn't always have to involve um, Grant Williams playing as like an undersized five, and Grant has been awesome so far in this series, especially in games two and three, like Grant has been very, very useful, but again, is a guy that's like somewhat limited here. 
I mean, in terms right. of what he's doing, especially offensively. Like, I know the three-point shot's falling right now, but Grant knows his role and doesn't try to do too much offensively by design because he has so many good teammates. So the big thing for me is going to be how much – how many minutes can they get out of Daniel Tice and how effective is that small lineup going up against Bam where one of, you know, Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum, frankly, or Marcus Smart, that might be smart that they put on him, um, is going to have to deal with Bam because that does not feel like a great matchup for me. Yeah, I mean, it just it it gets interesting at that point when you do go small. I think it's smart that goes on Bam when you go small. And I think you just got to be ready to give help. And And you know what? I also trust Smart to to be able to do it. You know, he's proven to be a hell of a defender. And this is, you know, for all the disappointment sometimes of not making an all-defensive team or a defensive player of the year award, like this is where you prove it. And this is where I think he can step up for this team. And I think it just opens the whole, just opens so many things for them up offensively. And I think that's really kind of the important thing for, for the Celtics. The last thing that opens up a lot for them offensively before we get out of here, I just want to briefly note Jason Tatum's passing ability. Uh, The leap he's made as a passer throughout these playoffs has just been so incredibly important to how Boston is operating. His ability to now like read the second and third level of defenses, hit a ridiculous drive and kick, and consistently hit that guy. Uh, I mean, over his last five games, he's had nine, seven, five, four, eight assists. And it's been an enormous part of allowing him to actually have the ball more often in his hands and feel like uh, you can let Kemba Walker play off the ball and try and get loose that way, as opposed to having to deal with Bam in a pick and roll where Bam is just going to switch on to him and make his life miserable. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like his his growth as a playmaker has been really good, and 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 is going. It has to continue to get better and improve because again, at times he gets into tunnel vision and gets stuck into you know I need to go get my own. But his ability to draw in guys on the the drives and and, and being able to to make the right read out of it is is what's going to take Tatum really to the next level as a as a superstar. Yeah, I mean, I think it already has. He is, he's just been so unbelievable in the playoffs. I mean, the guy's averaging twenty-five points, ten rebounds, five assists, uh, and about a block and a steal per game, while shooting forty-five, thirty-nine, eighty from the field. I mean, this guy's twenty-two. This should not be happening. <laughs> like this, this, is, this is not normal. You know, but he's in what his fourth year in the league now. I think this is. I mean, this Third, is the growth. Yeah. The third, this is the growth you kind of, you know, you it's happening quickly, but it's impressive and it's it's a good thing. And this is the stuff we've we've kind of got excited about his rookie year, right? Where we're like, dude, this dude's gonna be has a chance to be a star. And although he took a little bit of a regression the the second year for a million different reasons, you know, it's it's great to see him kind of step up now in this role. And and you know, here's the other thing too, and this is something Celtics fans should be excited about. I only see good things for Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum for years to come, you know, for the Celtics, you know, as long as they handle all the other pieces around them properly, I think this team's going to be something for the next, you know, five to six, seven years with these guys. If knock on wood, everybody stays healthy and, and things like that. Like this is the kind of, you know, tight knit 
group between those two, I think that you're going to begin to see some truly amazing things over the years with, with this squad. I mean, they've got the two toughest things figured out. Like the two toughest pieces to get in the NBA right now are two-way wings who can create their own shot. They've got two of them that are 23 years old and younger. Like that's, that's the ball game. You can figure out, especially with all the assets they have, they have three first round picks coming up this year. Like, they can figure out the rest of it, I think, around those two. Um, and if they don't, it will honestly be just like a tremendous failure of this front office if these two don't – if they don't win a title with these two. But I kind of think that at some point it's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen this year. But uh, they are – they've got the toughest part figured out long term, I think, in Boston. Yeah, no, they're 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 well situated. They're in a good spot right now. I think it's just a matter of continuing it to grow and and basically don't screw it up. <laughs> uh, all right, Mo, I'm gonna get you out of here, man. Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on in your life. I mean, did you did you watch the Emmys last night? Uh, in the midst of watching this uh, Lakers Nuggets series, what, what's going on with you? I. I did not watch the Emmys. I'm not a huge award show fan uh, in general, so that wasn't really on my my list. But uh, look, NBA basketball is on. I'm going to be locked in for the playoffs with that stuff. You can find my writing uh, work on Bleacher Report. You can find, you know, I'm on several podcasts. It feels like a day now uh, (laughs) for The Athletic from, you know, The Daily Ding to Nerder She Wrote to Brody and the beard where we talk about the houston rockets um you know and, and you can find all that stuff just by following me on twitter at mo dakil m-o-d-a-k-h-i-l underscore nba uh because i tweet out a whole bunch of stuff and during games i'm constantly tweeting out videos and you know trying to point out the good stuff the bad stuff mo's the best guys uh there's a reason that i have him on somewhat regularly to break down the x's and o's it's because he's the best man like i'm so excited that uh, I, we got a chance to really dive into the weeds on these two series because they are fun. Like there are a lot of different little things happening out there from an adjustment standpoint, from an X's and O's standpoint. And there's no one better to talk about them than Mo. Uh, we'll be back later this week with some more stuff, but until next time we will talk soon. Bye.